6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Song of Songs, chapter 1 through 2, verse 7. own vineyard, if you will, my own feminine beauty and so forth. She failed to maintain her appearance, apparently didn't need to because our shepherd king is going to fall in love with her as it is. And that seems to be her only regret. There is no reason for a Christian not to take care of themselves as a suggestion here in terms of application. During courtship, didn't we all take special pains to look our best? We had a date that night, didn't we go the extra mile to make sure we had a care cut and make sure that we had sharp, freshly pressed, whatever, okay? Why is it that we don't do that now? Why is that a priority for us up until the wedding? And why is it that we tend to say, oh, we kick back and relax from that point on? Are we cheating our partner? The word cosmos means, in the Greek, it's the word meaning to bring order out of chaos, cosmos. It's the root term for cosmetics, to bring order out of chaos. I'll just leave that with you as a thought. Anyway, this reminds her of her lover posing as a simple shepherd, concealing his true identity. And when we come into our Lord, to the company of our Lord, we too should be overwhelmed by our inadequacy. I'm in the middle of doing a study on the fear of God. And boy, that's another concept that's absent from our Christian culture. It's something that's left our vocabulary. Years ago, you could speak of someone as God-fearing. You don't use that term anymore. Even within a Christian body, we tend to presume a familiarity that tends to hide the majesty that we're dealing with, the awesomeness of God. We are to tremble. We are to tremble. Okay, verse 7. Tell me, O thou whom my soul loveth, where thou feedest, where thou makest thy flock to rest at noon. For why should I be as one that turneth aside by the flocks of thy companions? And so, saying, where can I find you at work? She desires his proximity. When she says turneth aside, the term there actually means as a veiled one, like either a married woman or a prostitute would be veiled. So we see her confronted with the shepherd king. That's a term we're very comfortable with because it's, it is, of course, messianic also. Because our king is indeed a shepherd. He's the good shepherd, according to John 10. Our suffering savior, Psalm 22, says the same thing. He's the great shepherd in Hebrew 13 and the living shepherd in Psalm 23. And he's the chief shepherd, 1 Peter 5.4, as the exalted sovereign in Psalm 24. Just as we have the good shepherd, great shepherd, and chief shepherd in the New Testament, We have in the Psalms, Psalm 22, Psalm 23, Psalm 24, the shepherd Psalms. So that concept we don't have to embellish. I think most of us have an instinctive comfort with recognizing the Messiah as a shepherd king in in three different specific dimensions. But moving on, in verse 8, If thou know not, O thou fairest among women, go thy way forth by the 
footsteps of the flock and feed thy kids beside the shepherd's tents. Go thy way forth. See, the daughters of Jerusalem respond, giving her implicit counsel here. Go thy way forth. The concept of marriage includes the concept of leaving as well as cleaving. There's another thought underneath this. The idea you not only cleaved your husband, you leave your past, if you will. And uh, that was not only quoted in Genesis 2.24, it's repeatedly, it's quoted three times in the New Testament. Uh, Matthew 19 and Mark 10 are by Christ himself. And so many people's in-law problems would be solved if we applied that properly. There is a concept of leaving as well as cleaving. And we're going to get into some of that in the subsequent sessions. These first, this first reflections are sort of overviews, if you will. And uh, so uh, this, is, this is a reflection, but it's really reflecting, it's reflecting on circumstances uh, prior to the wedding feast and so forth. Now, this next reflection will focus on the wedding feast, verses 9 through 14. I have compared thee, O my love, to a company of horses in Pharaoh's chariots. Now, that's the, I'm not recommending you use that as a compliment to your wife that she reminds you of a company of horses in Pharaoh's chariots, because that's not using idioms that are uh, comfortable for us in our culture. Um, have you compared your wife to a horse lately? I, I hope not. In the ancient world, the circumstances, uh, circumstances are quite different. Uh, remember in the order of the law of the king, I mentioned the horses, wives, and then gold, silver, in that order? Solomon was a great lover of horses. Horses were a prime thing in their culture. That was the primary mode of transportation, the primary mode of, of military power, and they were, horses were uh, admired, they were beautiful. There's a whole different uh, attitude there, of course. And many of those came from Egypt. That was a prime place. And uh, so Solomon was used to expertise with regard horses. Horses can be an idiom of beauty. Let's not, it may be strange for our use, but not to them. And uh, there are many positive features of horses. They're listed in Job 39 if you want to get into that. And I have to tell you, I prefer my horses several hundred a time under a hood, but that's a whole different kind of thing. In that culture, horses were a big part of their uh, life. Now, the Hebrew text here has some strange aspects because it, the word here is in the feminine singular. Mares were never used to draw chariots, only stallions. She is compared to a filly among the royal stallions. So there's overtones in the actual Hebrew that we miss for several different reasons. There's a cultural reason and a linguistic reason. So there's, 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 this has more positive impact than you and I would infer in a casual reading. And by the way, the word love here is the, is the word darling, means the one and only. But she says, Thy cheeks are comely with rows of jewels, thy neck with chains of gold. Now, women wore headdresses in those days with straps that hung down uh, upon their cheeks. So that's the, the, the topology here. We will make thee borders of gold with studs of silver. The board borders, there's actually braids. Now, how do you make braids of gold? Well, gold is braided by pounding and then beating it and so forth but make the borders, uh, braids with gold and studs of silver. So that's just that's jewelry. Silver is the metal of redemption, by the way. Let's not lose sight of that. Tabernacle rested on silver sockets. Silver was the redemption coins. There's also the blood money and so forth. Anyway, he is taking care of her, reassuring her. One of the things we're going to see 
all the way through this song is how dominant communication is in the relationship. It's an it's a aspect that we tend to ignore in our life. He's taking care of her. And notice he only has good things to say about her. There's nothing like encouragement every day. We do that while we're dating. We do that up until the wedding. And then tragically, we take it for granted from that point on, and that's a big mistake. Every one of us, male and female, need encouragement every day, each a different kind. We need to compliment her legitimately, validly, sincerely every day. And she needs to be our cheering section, restoring us, revering us, being our cheerleaders every day. That's critical. That's part of what the marriage is all about. Notice the we. We will make the so forth. The we is plural. It's not I. We. It's a we thing. Now, this, if, as you go through this uh, on an allegorical thing, this we is really important. It is even suggestive of the Trinity, and we'll get to that later in a later session. Continuing here in verse 12, While the king sitteth at his table, my spikenard sendeth forth the sweet smell thereof. And so Shulamite responds. Now, by the way, to give you a feeling of Solomon's table, <laughs> 190 bushels of fine flour, 390 bushels of meat every day, 10 fat oxen every day, 20 oxen out of the pasture, 100 sheep besides hearts, roebucks and fallow deer and fatted child. This is a king that knew how to be a king. Queen of Sheba heard the rumors about it, couldn't believe it, and when she went to visit, she says, not the half of it wasn't told me. Overwhelmed. Okay. Now, this word spikenard shows up frequently here. We need to understand spikenard. It came from a stem and leaves of a fragrant plant in the Himalayas. That's a long way away that made it very expensive. Spikenard is very, very sweet-smelling stuff, very expensive. And it was considered the spice that aroused sexual passion in Isaiah 3, Esther 2, elsewhere. In fact, it was, that was the spice that Mary used on his feet and Judas disdained because of its cost, you may recall. We reminded how believers, like the bride of Jesus Christ, should be sweet smell in his nostrils. You and I are to be a sweet smell in his nostrils. We want to think about what that means. We'll talk about that later. A bundle of myrrh, she says, is my well-beloved unto me. So now she switches to another spice. He shall lie all night betwixt my breasts. The word myrrh refers to the ancient practice of women wearing a bundle of myrrh from a chain hanging around their necks to counteract their body odor. It's, very, it, it's, a, it's a deodorant, if in effect. And uh, uh, so a bundle of myrrh is, is between her breasts. It's an aromatic rosin from the stems and branches of a shrub that grows in Arabia, Abyssinia, and Somalia. And it was used to perfume clothing in Psalm 45 and for the body in Esther 2. In another book of Solomon's, the book of Proverbs, it is used in terms of sexual passion in Proverbs 7. So these are spices. They're very aromatic, but they speak of more than just the fragrance, if you will. And we can joke about it ourselves. But how you smell is important to your mate. And that's from both sides. She says, My beloved is to me as a cluster of coffer in the vineyards and Getty. Now, a coffer was the cypress or henna flower, a plant with a fragrant 
yellow and white flowers. Again, fragrant, beautiful. He is to, unto me as a cluster of coffer in the vineyards of it. Now, En Gedi is an oasis in a place where you hardly expect an oasis. When you go down to the Dead Sea, there's an oasis that David used to hide in. And there's a lot of stories about that in the scripture. But uh, the vineyards of En Gedi is a very choice spot. My beloved is to me as a cluster of coffer in the vineyards of En Gedi. It's just a way of expressing positiveness in, 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 in their terms. So, okay. And uh, the application of all this, note the importance of verbalizing your appreciation of your mate. Boy, if you're going to put anything in your notes, write that one down. The importance of verbalizing the appreciation of your mate. That's not a casual footnote. That's the main theme through this whole song. This can be physical beauty, behavior, little things, whatever. They need to be honest. They have to be candid and sincere. But they need to be positive and they should be daily. Did you tell your wife today that you love her and what she means to you? Have you communicated to your wife every day what she means to you? That's going to take some creativity. You don't say the same thing all the time. You've got to figure out how to really get that across if you're serious about it. You need to be serious about it. Marriage is something you work on, that you invest in, and it'll bear fruit. Note the importance here of addressing the physical aspects. Cleanliness and adornments have a critical purpose here. Don't take that for granted. As Christians, we tend to, well, that's the world. But no, 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 no. That's part of the marriage. Okay, so now we're from the wedding feast. We go into the bridal chamber. This is a preview, really, of what we're going to get into detail later. So don't get confused by that. But the third reflection, she's been reflecting on the, in the first one, she's preparing for the wedding feast. Second reflection was the wedding feast and then the, in the bridal chamber. The man begins, she responds. It's always the pattern. The man begins, she responds, okay? Behold, thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair, thou hast dove's eyes. Fair here means ravishing, excellent, wonderful. He's simply returning her expressions of excellence. The dove is an interesting idiom because the dove is faithful to its mate for life. That in itself is provocative. It also happens to be the symbol for peace. So the word dove embodies all of that, if you will, as a subtle a metaphor, if you will. And he says, um, the word uh, uh, my love is raya for my love. It means my darling, my one and only. Moving on to verse 16. Behold, thou art fair, my beloved, yea, pleasant. Also, our bed is green. Now, that's a translation uh, thing, unfortunately. That's the same thing as before, but there's a grammatical change of gender here. In verse 7, she asked for two things, to be fed and that she might have rest. She's fed in verse 12. She finds rest in his house in verse 16. But there's another aspect. This word green is a strange translation because the word ra'anan means to grow luxuriant or fresh. Proper term might have been verdant. See, verdant suggests green, but in a difference, in a springtime sense. It's an, it comes from an unused root, meaning to be green, but it actually means to be fresh, in the, like, like in springtime. And notice it's our bed, not my bed, your bed, it's our bed. The plural, first person plural, is, echoes very importantly here. The beams of our house are cedar. Notice our again. The, the beams of our house are cedar, and our rafters are fir. 
Notice our in both cases. It's not I, it's we, us together. Cedars and firs, by the way, are not native to Jerusalem. They came from the north near Shulamite's home, by the way. Well, we've shifted over to chapter 2. I'm minimizing that because we're really dividing this by the idols, but we just have gone into chapter 2 here a little bit. I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. See, she describes her unworthiness, comparing herself to a simple, very simple country flower. An autumn crocus common in the plain of Sharon and a common lily found in the valleys of Israel. The lily, see, the lily to us sounds like exotic. No, to them it was very, very common. So you get the wrong impression if you don't pick up on that. Okay. But Solomon, recognizing her need for reassurance, interrupts her, her uh, comparison. She's using a diminutive comparison. He interrupts her to go the other way, if you will. Incidentally, out of 117 verses, 55 are clearly from her lips, with another 19 probably from hers. Some experts will argue a little bit about that. That's unusual for in, a, in an ancient love poem for a woman speaking that much. That's, that, that in itself is, is worthy of comment here. But he interrupts her and says, As the lily among thorns, so is my love among the daughters. That's a common flower perhaps, but it's one that surpasses everything around it is the thought that's implied there. Thorns is not the thorn of a flower stem, such as a rose, but the thorn bushes that are very, they're known for being very plentiful. And as a lily among thorns, in other words, she's, she's the exception in a sense, what he's trying to get across here. So Shulamite speaks and begins to describe her first sexual union, and that's going to be discussed in more detail later on in the book, if you will. As the apple tree among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved among the sons. Now, it's interesting how poor the similes are of the bride as compared to those of the bridegroom. To him, she is a lily among thorns. She can only say that he is the apple tree among the trees of the wood. It's Schofield that makes that footnote. It's interesting how uh, she's outdone by him even in the selection of the similes. She says, I sat down under his shadow with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. And by the way, the apples are probably actually apricots. That's a translational issue. Uh, they were, in any case, uh, in the ancient world, erotic symbols. Both apples and apricots are used that way. And uh, some commentators have viewed this verse as a possible reference to oral sex being performed by the bride. I'm not going to go there. We'll just... I sat down under a shadow with a great delight. And uh, that phrase is used in the Psalms uh, seven, uh, what, one, two, three, four, five, five or six times. He brought me to the banqueting house and his banner over me was love. The banqueting house is actually, uh, literally, it's a house of wine. It re it's a common reference to the bridal chamber. It's a, it's, a, it's a term of celebration, if you will. And his banner over me was love. Now, a banner is something, that, a device to find your place in a crowd, or it's also used to acknowledge a victory or a triumph. When you go to Israel with a group, you usually have a banner that you recognize as your group. When you're in a crowd, you can cluster. So that, that, that's what they use, the banner is used that way. It's also a way of announcing or symbolizing a victory or a triumph. His banner over me was what? Love. And so there's that word love again, ahava. Stay me with flagons, comfort me with apples, for I am sick of love. Don't misread that. Aroused through floor play, satisfaction is now sought by the act itself. 
When she says sick of love, she really means I am lovesick. Sort of the opposite of what we think of, of it saying, meaning, if you will. And she's anxious to go forward, so to speak. His left hand is under my head. His right hand doth embrace me. So they become, that's a, uh, a, a way of expressing they both become one. They are in a clinch. In the sex act, man and woman become one. That's going to be detailed for us uh, in a, uh, a next idle down the list here a little bit. It occurs in the marriage, according to Genesis 2 and Matthew 19, or also outside of marriage. And that's, in 1 Corinthians 6, something Paul deals with, a problem that many of us don't associate with in a proper, improper sex outside the marriage. In any case, this tension here gives rise to Shulamite's critical admonition that's going to come up three times in this thing. She says then, she turns to the daughters of Jerusalem, in other words, the crowd, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the rows and by the hinds of the field, that ye steer not up, nor awaken love, till it pleases. And so what she's saying here, that ye steer not up, nor awaken love. Don't arouse, don't excite the passions, because they will, until you can satisfy them or fulfill them. This, it's dangerous to get into petting, because that will lead to one of two things, frustration or fornication. And that's an admonition here. And I don't want you to presume from this reflection that they had sex before marriage, because it can be very, very clear when you get to the detailing of that, that she is a virgin when that marriage is consumed, consummated. Okay. Sexual passions should not be aroused unless they could also be satisfied or fulfilled. Otherwise, they will lead to frustration or worse, fornication. This verse, this is a refrain in the song three times. In verse 7 of chapter 2 here, verse 5 of chapter 3, and verse 4 of chapter 8. So it's going to show up three times in the song with the same underscore, if you will. It emphasized that sex should be enjoyed the way God intended. It's a defense of marital love. It warns against premarital or extramarital sex. An adultery is prohibited in the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verse 14. Those are not ten suggestions. Those are ten commandments. Incest, adultery, homosexuality, and bestiality are all condemned. Leviticus 18 and 20, there's plenty of verses about that. No competent debate about that. Adultery, prostitution, extramarital sex is condemned. Proverbs 5 and 6 are full of verses on that. Homosexuality and all kinds of sexual immorality is condemned. Romans 1, from verse 24 to the end of that chapter, is critical. Homosexuality there is a judgment of God on a culture. A culture that fails to acknowledge Him as Creator, God will send a judgment. And that judgment is homosexuality. Whew. See, Sodom, the, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was not homosexuality. The sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was the public condoning of homosexuality. Incest and all kinds of sexual immorality is condemned in 1 Corinthians 5, all through the Scripture. Don't forget Hebrews 13.4. Marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled. But whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. Key point, 
all through this thing. The bed is coitus. It refers to sexual intercourse. In the English, it might be ambiguous. In the Greek, it's not. So there's a whole bunch of verses all through the New Testament that not only condemn sexual immorality, they warn that its continual practice may reveal that you're not saved. Mark Twain said, it isn't the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that bothers me. It's the parts of the Bible I do understand that bothers me. Now, some commentators see the following section as retrospective reflections on the courtship period. And so we'll go through that here. So these are the reflections here. And uh, now, the second idol, which starts in uh, chapter 2, verse 8, has two reflections, the springtime visit, dreams of separation. So we've been through the first three reflections, which constitute the first idol, that brought us overlap a little bit into chapter 2. And next time, we're going to take chapters 2 and the first part of chapter 3. So I want you to prepare by reading chapters 2 and 3 before the next session, okay? So with that, let you and I stand for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. How desperately we need your counsel. We want to understand sex. We want to understand intimacy, not only with our mate, but also with you. We pray, Father, that through your Holy Spirit and through your word, you will be our guide and give us a perspective and an illumination of what's ahead so that we might be more pleasing in your sight as we come before you, placing ourselves into your hands without any reservations whatsoever. We come to you in the name of of our shepherd king in the name of our bridegroom Yeshua the Lord Jesus Christ Amen You've been listening to 6640 the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler teaching through the book of Song of Songs Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.